Some of you may have heard that the Disney Corporation is responsible for at least one real live ghost town. Disney built the Treasure Island Resort in Baker's Bay in the Bahamas. It didn't start as a ghost town. Disney's cruise ships would actually stop at the resort and leave tourists there to relax in luxury. This is a fact, you can look it up. Disney blew $30 million on this place. Yes, $30 million. And then they just abandoned it. Disney blamed the shallow waters being too shallow for their ships to safely operate. And there was even blame cast on the workers, saying that since they were from the Bahamas, they were too lazy to work on a regular schedule. That's where the factual nature of the story ends. It wasn't because of sand, and it obviously wasn't because they're lazy. Both are convenient excuses. No, I sincerely doubt those reasons were legitimate. Why don't I buy the official story? Because of Mowgli's palace. You see, near the beachside of Emerald Isle in North Carolina, Disney began construction of Mowgli's palace in the late 1990s. The concept was a jungle-themed resort with a large, you guessed it, palace right in the center of the whole thing. If you're unfamiliar with the character of Mowgli, you might better remember the story of The Jungle Book. If you haven't seen it anywhere else, you'd know it as the Disney cartoon from decades past. Mowgli is an abandoned child in the jungle, essentially raised by animals and simultaneously threatened and pursued by other animals. Mowgli's palace was a controversial undertaking from the very start. Disney bought up a ton of high-priced land for the project, and there was actually a scandal surrounding some of the purchases. The local government claimed eminent domain on people's homes, then turned around and sold the properties directly to Disney. At one point, a home that had just been constructed was immediately condemned with little to no explanation. The land grabbed by the government was supposedly for some fictional highway project. Knowing full well what was going on, people started calling it the Mickey Mouse Highway. Then there was the concept art. You see, a group of stuffed shirts from Disney actually held a city meeting where they intended to sell everyone on how lucrative the project was going to be. They showed the concept art, the gigantic Indian palace surrounded by jungle, staffed with men and women in loincloths and tribal gear. Suffice to say, everyone flipped their shit. We're talking about a large Indian palace, jungle, loincloths, not only in the center of a relatively wealthy area, but also a somewhat xenophobic area of the southern USA. It was a questionable mix at that point in history. One member of the crowd even tried to storm the stage, but he was quickly subdued by security after he managed to break one of the presentation boards over his knee. Subsequently, Disney took that community and essentially broke it over its knee as well. The houses were raised, the land was cleared, and there wasn't a damn thing anyone could do or say about it. Local TV and newspapers were against the resort at the very beginning but some insane connection between Disney's media holdings and the local venues came into play and their opinions turned on a dime. So, anyway, Treasure Island, the Bahamas. Disney sunk those millions in and then split. The same thing happened with Mowgli's Palace. Construction was complete, visitors actually stayed at the resort, the surrounding communities were flooded with traffic and the usual annoyances associated with an influx of lost and irate tourists. Then it just stopped. Disney shut it down, and nobody knew what the hell to think. But they were pretty happy about it. Disney's loss was pretty hilarious and wonderful to a large group of folks who didn't want this in the first place. 
I honestly didn't give the place another thought since hearing it closed over a decade ago. I live maybe four hours from Emerald Isle, so I really only heard the rumblings and didn't experience any of it firsthand. Then I read this article from someone who had explored the Treasure Island Resort and posted the whole blog about all the crazy shit he found there. Stuff just left behind. Things smashed, defaced, probably ruined by the disgruntled former employees who had lost their jobs there. Hell, the locals from all around probably had a hand in wrecking that place. People there felt just as angry about Treasure Island as folks here did about Mowgli's Palace. Plus, there were rumors that Disney had released their aquarium stock into the local waters when they closed. This includes sharks. Who wouldn't want to take a few swings at some merchandise after that? Well, what I'm getting at is that this blog post about Treasure Island got me thinking. Even though many years had passed since its closing, I figured it might be cool to do some urban exploration at Mowgli's Palace. Take some photos, write about my experience, and probably see if there was anything that I could take home as a memento. I'm not going to say I wasted no time getting there, because honestly, it took me another year after I first found that Treasure Island article to get around to going up to Emerald Isle. Over the course of that first year, though, I did a lot of research on the Palace Resort. Or rather, I tried. Naturally, no official Disney site or resource had made any mention of the place. That had been scrubbed clean. Even odder was that nobody before myself had apparently thought to blog about the place or even post a photo. None of the local TV or newspaper sites had one word about the place. Though that was to be expected since they all swung Disney's way. They wouldn't be out here lauding their embarrassment, you know. Recently, I learned that corporations can actually ask Google, for example, to remove links from search results, basically for no good reason. Looking back, it's probably not that nobody spoke of the resort, but rather their words were made inaccessible. So in the end, I could barely find the place. All I had to go on was this old as hell map that I received in the mail back in the 90s. It was a promotional item sent out to the people who had recently been to Disney World. And I guess since I had been there in the late 80s, that was recent. A anyway, I didn't really intend to hang on to it. It just got shoved in with my books and comics from my childhood. I'd only remembered about it months into my research, and even then it took me a few weeks to locate the storage bin my parents had shoved it all into. I did end up finding it, but the locals were no help. As most were transplants who moved to the beach in recent years, or elderly residents who just sneered at me and made rude gestures the second I managed to say, where would I find Mowgli's? You get the picture. The drive took me through a long corridor of overgrowth. Tropical plants that had run rampant and overpopulated the area, mixed with the native species of flora that actually belonged there and had tried to reclaim the land. I was in awe when I reached the front gates of the resort tremendous monolithic wooden gates whose supports to either side looked like they must have been cut from giant sequoias. The gate itself had been gouged in several places by woodpeckers and eaten away at the base by burrowing insects. Hanging onto the gate was a sheet of metal, some random scrap, with hand-painted letters scrawled in black. Abandoned by Disney. Clearly the handiwork of some past local or an employee who wanted to make some small protests. The gates were open enough to walk through, but not to drive, so grabbing my digital camera and the map, whose flip side showed a layout of the resort, I set off on foot. 
The inner grounds of the place were just as overgrown as the entryway. Palm tree stood untended and ragged among piles of their own coconuts. Banana plants, similarly, stood in their own stinking, bug-riddled refuse. There was this sort of clash between order and chaos, as carefully planted rows of perennial flowers mixed with obnoxious tall weeds and stinking blackened mushrooms. All that remained of any outdoor structures were broken, rotting wood and various charred bits of unidentifiable material. What was most likely an information booth, or an outdoor bar, was now simply a pile of assorted debris chopped up by past vandalism and ravaged by weather. The most interesting thing on the grounds was a big statue of Baloo, the friendly bear from the Jungle Book, which stood in a sort of courtyard in front of the main building. He was frozen in a jovial wave toward nobody, staring into empty space with a silly toothy grin as bird crap covered whole swaths of his fur and vines ensnared his platform. I approached the main building, the palace, only to find the outside of the building covered in graffiti where the original paint hadn't peeled and chipped away. The front doors weren't just open, they had been taken off their hinges and were stolen. Above the front doors, or the gaping maw where they would have been, someone had once again painted, abandoned by Disney. I wish I could tell you about all the awesome stuff I saw inside the palace. Forgotten statues, abandoned cash registers, a full-fledged society of the homeless, but no. The inside of the building was so stark and bare that I actually think people had stolen the molding off the walls. Anything that wasn't too big to steal, counters, desks, giant fake trees, they were all resting amid this empty echo chamber that amplified every step like a slow rat-a-tat of a machine gun. I checked the floor plan and headed to all the locations that might seem in any way interesting. The kitchen was as you'd imagine a giant industrial food prep area with all the appliances in space, no expenses spared. Every glass surface was broken, every door knocked off its hinges, and every metal surface kicked and dented. The entire place smelled like very, very old piss. The huge freezer, not even remotely cool now, had row upon row of empty shelf space, hooks hung from the ceiling, probably for hanging cuts of meat, and as I stood inside for a moment, I noticed they were swinging. Each hook swung in a random direction, but their movements were so slow and small that it was almost impossible to see. I figured it had been caused by my footsteps, so I stopped one from swinging by clutching it in my fist, then carefully letting it go. But within seconds, it started to swing once more. The bathrooms were in much the same state as the rest of the place. Just like the Treasure Island Resort, someone had methodically smashed each porcelain commode with coconuts and other implements. There was about a half an inch of rancid, stinking, stagnant water on the floor, so I didn't stay there very long. What's odd is that the toilets and the sinks all dripped, leaked, or just ran freely. It seemed to me that they should have shut the water off long, long ago. But they didn't. There were plenty of rooms in the resort, but naturally, I didn't have time to look through them all. The few I did peer into were similarly wrecked, and I didn't expect to find anything there. I thought there was actually a television or a radio in one room, as I really think I heard a quiet conversation coming out, though it was like a whisper, probably my own breathing echoing in the silence, or just another case of the sound of flowing water playing tricks on my mind. 
This is what it sounded like. I know, I know. That sounds ridiculous. I'm just telling you what I experienced and why I thought there might have been something running in that room, or worse, some vagrants who had holed up in there and probably would have knifed me. At the front doors of the palace again, I figured I hadn't found anything of note and wasted the trip up. As I looked out the door, I noticed something interesting in the courtyard that I had apparently missed. Something that would give me at least one thing to show for all my trouble, even if it was just a photograph. There was a lifelike statue of a python, maybe 80 feet long, coiled up and sunning itself on a pedestal right in the center of the area. It was almost time for the sun to start setting, so the light fell onto the object in a perfect way for a photograph. I approached the python and snapped the photo, then I stood on my toes and snapped another. I moved closer again to get the detail of its face. Slowly, casually, the python lifted its head, looked directly into my eyes, turned and slithered off of the pedestal, across the grass and into the trees, all 80 feet of it. Its head long disappeared into the woods before its tail even left the sunning spot. Disney had released all their exotic animals onto the grounds. Right there on my floor plan map was the reptile house. I should have known. I read about the sharks at the Treasure Isle. I should have known they'd done this. I was dumbfounded, just utterly stupefied. My mouth must have been hanging open for the longest time before I came back down to Earth and snapped it shut. I blinked a few times and backed away from where the snake had been, back towards the palace. It took a few deep breaths and slaps to my own face to get myself right in the head again after that. I looked for a place to sit down, as my legs were feeling a bit like jelly at this point. Of course, there was no place for me to sit, unless I wanted to recline in the broken glass and dead leaf carpet, or haul myself up onto a desk of questionable reliability. I had seen some stairs by the palace's lobby and decided to go have a seat there until I felt better. The staircase was far enough away from the front of the building to be relatively clean, save for the startling accumulation of dust. I pulled a wedge of metal off the wall, once again painted with the Abandoned by Disney motto I'd become accustomed to. I placed the wedge on the stairs and sat on it to keep at least somewhat clean. The stairway led downward, below ground level. Using my camera flash as a sort of improvised flashlight, I could see that the staircase ended in a metal mesh door with a padlock. A sign on the door, a real sign, read, Mascots only, thank you. This perked up my spirits a little bit, for two reasons. One, a mascots-only area would have definitely some interesting stuff back in the day. Two, the padlock was still in place. Nobody had gotten down there. Not even the vandals, not the looters. Nobody. This was one place I could actually explore and perhaps find something interesting to photograph or wantonly steal. I had come to the palace essentially agreeing with myself that it was okay to take anything I wanted because, hey, it's abandoned. It didn't take much to bust the lock. Well, actually, that's wrong. It didn't take much to bust the metal plate on the wall that the padlock was hooked onto. 
time and decay had done most of the work for me, and I was able to bend the metal plate enough to pull the screws out of the wall, something no one else had apparently thought of or hadn't been able to do at the time. The mascot's only area was a startling and very welcome change for the rest of the building I'd seen. For one, every second or third fluorescent light overhead was illuminated, even though they flickered and faded off randomly. Also, nothing had been stolen or broken, even if age and exposure were definitely taking their toll. Tables had no pads and pens. There were clocks, even a punching clock on the wall, complete with filled-out time cards. Chairs were scattered around, and there was even a small break room with an old static-filled television and long-rotted-out food and drink on the counters. It was like one of those post-apocalypse movies, where everything is left in a state of evacuation. As I walked the maze-like sub-basement hallways of the mascot-only area, the sights just became more and more interesting. As I went further, desks and tables were knocked over, paper scattered and almost melded with the damp floor, and a large carpet of mold was slowly overtaking the real rotting crimson floor covering. Everything was just sort of squishy. Anything wood disintegrated into mush when I applied even the least amount of force, and clothing items hanging on hooks in one of the rooms simply fell to moist threads if I tried to unhook them. One thing that annoyed me was that the light was becoming more sparse and unreliable as I went further into the dark, suffocating depths of the place. Eventually, I reached a black and yellow striped door with the words Character Prep 1 stenciled on it. The door wouldn't open at first. I figured this was probably where the costumes were kept, and I definitely wanted a photograph of that twisted, stinking mess. Try as I might, whatever angle or trick I tried, the door just wouldn't budge. That is, until I gave up and started to walk away. That was when there was a slight popping sound, and the door creaked open slowly. Inside, the room was completely dark, pitch black. I used the camera flash to look for a light switch on the wall by the door, but there was nothing. As I made my search, I was jarred out of my sense of excitement by a loud electrical buzz. Rows of lights overhead suddenly flashed to life, flickering and fading in and out like the rest I had just passed. It took a second for my eyes to adjust, and it seemed like the light was just going to keep getting brighter until all the bulbs exploded. But then, just when I thought it would reach that critical stage, the lights dimmed a bit and steadied. The room was exactly as I had pictured it. Various Disney costumes hung on the walls, fully put together like strange cartoon cadavers hung from invisible nooses. There was an entire rack of loincloths and clothes on hangers towards the back. What I found odd, and what I wanted to photograph right away, was a Mickey Mouse costume at the center of the room. Unlike the other costumes, it was lying on its back in the center of the floor like a murder victim. The fur on its costume was rotten and shedding, creating bare patches. What was even odder, what was even odder, however, was the coloring of the costume. It was like a photo negative of the actual Mickey Mouse. Black where he should be white and white where he should be black. His normally red overalls were light blue. The sight was off-putting enough that I actually put off photographing the thing until last. I took a picture of the costumes hanging on the walls. 
upward angles, downward angles, side shots to show an entire row of frozen, putrid cartoon faces, some with plastic eyes missing. Then I decided to stage a shot, just one of the bedraggled character heads on the slick, grimy floor. I reached for the headpiece of a Donald Duck costume and carefully removed it so the thing wouldn't fall apart in my hands. As I looked into the face of the wide-eyed, moldering head, a loud, clattering sound made me jump with fright. I looked down at my feet, and there between my shoes was a human skull. It had fallen out of the mascot head and shattered into pieces at my feet. Only the empty face and lower jaw remained, staring up at me. I dropped the duck head immediately, as you'd expect, and moved for the door. As I stood in the doorway, I looked back to the skull on the floor. I I, I had to take a picture of it. Y you know, I, I had to, for any number of reasons. That may seem silly, but only if you don't think it through. I need proof of what happened, especially if Disney was going to somehow make this go away. I had no doubt in my mind, right from the start, that even if it was just gross negligence, Disney was responsible for this. That's when Mickey, the photo negative opposite Mickey in the middle of the floor, started to get up. First sitting up, then climbing to its feet, the Mickey Mouse costume, or whoever was inside of it, stood there at the center of the room its fake face just staring directly at me as I mumbled, no, no, over and over and over and over and over. With shaking hands, a violently thrashing heart, and legs that had once again turned to jelly, I managed to lift the camera and aim it at the opposite creature, now quietly sizing me up. The digital camera's screen displayed only dead pixels in the shape of the thing. It was a perfect silhouette of the Mickey costume. As the camera moved in my unsteady hands, the dead pixels spread, marring the screen wherever Mickey's outline moved to. Then the camera died. Went black and quiet. Broken. I raised my eyes once again to the Mickey Mouse costume. It said in a hushed, perverted Mickey Mouse voice. It started to pull at its own head, working its clumsy, glove-clad fingers around its neck with clawing, impatient movements similar to that of a wounded man trying to pull himself free of a predator's jaws. As it worked its digits into its neck, so much blood, so much thick, chunky, yellow blood, I turned away as I heard a sickening tearing of cloth and flesh. I only cared about getting away. Above the doorway, out of this room, I saw the final message clawed into the metal with bone and fingernails. Abandoned by God. I never got the pictures out of the camera. I never wrote the blog entry about it. After I ran from that place, fled for my sanity, if not my life, I knew why Disney didn't want anyone to know about this place. They didn't want anyone like me getting in. And they didn't want anything like that getting out.